Hello and welcome to this special episode of Disruptive Voices recorded at the ADB event in Korea. I'm speaking now with Lizette Cipriano, who is Senior Digital Technology Specialist, Finance Sector Group, Sustainable Development and Climate Change Department at the ADB. Thank you for joining me today, Lizette. Hello, Kimberly. Thank you for having me. To begin with, we talk a lot around how digital banking has been revolutionary in increasing financial inclusion. What are the real life examples of this? Well, I think there are lots to be picked up on in terms of what digital banks have done um, across the region or even the globe. Um, you know, you've heard of Time Bank, who has really put to the core of their proposition um, financial inclusion, really addressing people at the bottom of the pyramid. And I think that they have. Um, you know, achieved so much in being able to bank millions of customers in South Africa. And you also have um, a few good use cases in the Philippines where you have uh, First Circle who is um, targeting uh, SMEs and looking to provide access to um, these uh, entrepreneurs um, who are very hardworking and need more access to finance and, and support also in digitization. Um, you have um, Union Bank who have made great strides as well in the digital banking space and they themselves have actually um, or are continue, continuing to help other financial institutions in their own digital transformation journey so that they themselves can um, you know, expand their, their services, especially to the microfinance industry who are at the grassroots um, levels. And Tonic Bank, I think um, they're relatively new. Um, they have offered really good um, and attractive products and services, um, offered really good interest rates on their savings. So I think that there are really good use cases across um, the Asia-Pacific region, as well as the globe. Um, we'd love to see more digital banks. Um, and of course, obviously, outside of the digital banking space, you have the mobile money players and, and PESA, which was an organization that I used to work for with Vodafone Group. Um, they have made great strides as well. And, um, you know, I think the last I looked is 30% of the GDP of Kenya goes through the mobile banking service of M-Pesa. But there's more work to be done. It's never, it's never complete. And um, we still need to do a lot of initiatives that help support um, financial institutions like this and um, um, help them have an enabling environment. And us, like the ADB, um, multilateral development banks, um, international organizations working with regulators to help deliver that enabling environment for digital finance. And you talked there around there's so many initiatives happening globally, but you've been looking obviously really specifically into Asia. And one of the projects that I thought was really interesting that you've worked on is in Papua New Guinea. Can you explain to us about what that project is? Sure. I mean, um, I think that was a, a really challenging tar um, project to to deploy so uh, the issue in Papua New Guinea is really um, identification so 85% of the population don't have a form of identity and we all know that having identification is the first step to financial inclusion or getting uh, a financial account and even to access basic financial services such as health you know um, 
everyone must have the ability to be able to say they are who they say they are, right? And so when um, the central bank, the Bank of Papua New Guinea, approached us uh, for support because they really were keen and bent on addressing the financial inclusion uh, challenges that they were facing in the country, approached us for support to help them, you know, at least pilot or experiment with this type of uh, digital technology. Um, and so what we did was we engaged uh, a startup company uh, from Finland, they're called Digisen, and they essentially designed the product to address the challenges of Papua New Guinea um, because uh, obviously data connectivity um, is still an issue uh, in PNG. Um, and um, it's composed of different islands. And so geographically, it's a challenge to implement um, financial services. And a lot of um, the majority of the population lives in the rural areas. So we created that bespoke um, ID solution, which uh, ran on NFC. And we, to be able to do that, we had to also support the Bank of Papua New Guinea in developing their EKYC framework mm -hmm. so that uh, a solution like digital identity could be legally recognized as a form of identification for the financial services industry. And along with that, we also provided them support for establishing their regulatory sandbox program. So Digison was the first mm -hmm. to um, participate in the sandbox. And we partnered with two microfinance institutions um, in Papua New Guinea who had very strong um, women-centric products and services. And what we did there is we went to the rural areas of the East Sepik province and targeted vanilla farmers. Yeah, so on the field, whether it was there was data connectivity or none, mm -hmm. we were able to give them their identification card within minutes mm -hmm. and also issue them a bank account. Um, and one woman, which I, you know, I, I recall, she was so visibly happy. Mm. And so we set her aside and we interviewed her and we said, why are you so happy? And she said, you know, because culturally in Papua New Guinea, when a family member asks you for money, you can't say no. Mm. And so she said, now when I sell my goods in the marketplace, I can go to the bank and I can save my money, even if it's a small amount. And I can send my kids to school. Mm. And for me, what was the r realization in that, while we do understand that, you know, getting somebody financially included, getting them the ability to be able to save, the knock-on effect of that woman being able to save for her kids' education means that her kids, the next generation, would have the education mm. they need to be able to make more informed decisions for themselves and be you know, productive and be able to be part of society and be able to contribute. So, <clears throat> and then that, you know, and that progresses, yeah. right? So that's really interesting. And, and for me, you know, this project is really close to my heart. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds incredible. And to have that first-hand experience as well of how this is really changing people's lives is a very incredible thing to have, I think. Yeah, yeah. And to move on to the final point now, you are on a panel here at the ADB and you're talking about the importance of women and girls and financial inclusion. And you've just given a perfect example there. 
but can you give some more ideas really around how the ADB is working specifically to ensure that more women and girls across the region are given access to financial services? So we can stay here the whole day and talk <laughs> about that. <laughs> um, but I'm not going to keep you that long. <laughs> There's a list of projects that ADB is doing um, in this area. But I think, you know, just from our the gender team's perspective, um, I'm from the finance sector, but the gender teams are really doing a lot of work in this space as well. So making sure that, you know, um, governments are taking into consideration gender disaggregation um, and, and continuing the dialogue around that. In terms of product or, or platform, uh, because I work with both our sovereign and non-sovereign teams, we have from our private sector um, uh, side of uh, the bank what we call a women's finance exchange program. And so this is a platform that helps uh women SMEs get access to more finance or get access to finance. Um, and this carries two lenses, obviously gender, and the other one is climate or green finance. And we do this by working with uh, partner financial institutions, uh, working with them uh, and building their own uh, SME portfolio, women SME portfolio, and um, helping them uh, understand what are uh, what are some of the the requirements or the needs to be able to reach uh, these MSMEs, women SMEs at scale? So with that, we provide them with some technical assistance um, to help them digitize. Uh, we also work through our partners um, like um, institutions like Visa or AWS where we're having conversations with them. And... Um, uh, really also leveraging uh, some of their resources that can help support this program. Um, and then uh, we're also working with donors uh, to provide uh, the grant funding um, for uh, the financial institutions and the women SMEs. So it's a very interesting program um, and we hope to be able to support women who are using green solutions uh, and being able to scale that across the region. So we've done some work in uh, PNG again where we've helped uh, women businesses um, create this habit of datifying for the lack of a better term um, their transactions so that they so that the financial institution can create an alternative credit scoring uh, model uh, that caters to them specifically and then uh, we will have soon have a technical uh, technology innovation challenge for Pakistan to address uh, the needs of the women SMEs so lots of interesting programs um, and I can go on, as I said, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Well, I think that's definitely a lot of things to st for our listeners to really get their heads around and to look into as well. And it sounds like there's a lot more in the pipeline. So thank you so much, Felicity, for your time today. No worries. And happy to have this convers short conversation with <laughs> you, Kimberly. Good to meet you. Thank you. I'm joined now by Wendy Talecki, who is head of the WeFi Secretariat, part of the World Bank. Thanks for joining me, Wendy. Pleasure to be here. So to start with, you head up the Women Entrepreneurs Finance Initiative, which is the WeFi Secretariat. Can you talk through the work that the Secretariat does? Sure. Uh, WeFi was created in 2017 by the G20, and it was established to help uh, support women entrepreneurs around the world in developing countries. Um, to access finance and also improve their skills and access to markets um, around the world. 
Uh, so we have about uh, 14 donor countries who have supported WeFi, and we work through the multilateral development banks, including the Asian Development Bank, the African Development Bank, the Islamic Development Bank, Inter-American Development Bank, and the World Bank and IFC, NDBRD. Um, so we allocate funds to those organizations, and they develop programs in different countries to support women entrepreneurs. About half of our funding goes to access to finance, so we work with banks, with accelerators, with fintechs, um, with uh, other uh, financial institutions like insurance companies uh, to expand financing for women entrepreneurs through their channels. Um, we also work with training agencies, mentoring organizations and networks uh, to help build skills for women entrepreneurs. We work also with procurement agencies, corporations, e-commerce uh, companies to expand procurement from women and uh, increase market access for women um, so that they can build their sales. And we also work on the policy side. So we do what we call working across the ecosystem, really working with institutions that cover all aspects of the constraints that women entrepreneurs face, trying to break down those constraints and enable them to grow faster. And what you're seeing in terms of the situation for financial inclusion for women and girls in Asia and is it improving and are you seeing fintech playing a role in this? So we focus on women entrepreneurs and primarily with SMEs and we know that there's a 1.7 trillion dollar financing gap for women entrepreneurs. A large part of that is in Asia. Now one of the reasons for it being so large in Asia is that there's a larger number of women entrepreneurs in the region than in other regions uh, so the demand is much higher and therefore the gap is higher. One of the things we've seen with COVID is that the financing gap has actually grown. Um, and that's because many women entrepreneurs are um, being denied access to finance. Maybe they didn't have access to finance in the first place. And we see there's really still a dearth of institutions that are really focused on trying to identify ways to better serve the female population. And as you've already talked around you work a lot with the development banks, you know, you, you've told me before you're already off to see the Islamic Development Bank as well after this. Really now looking more broadly at the situation, what hurdles are there that still need to be addressed and actually what can these development banks be doing to help improve the situation? So we work a lot with different financial institutions. The first thing we do is we try to understand what's happening inside of the bank in terms of understanding the female market that they're trying to serve. Does the institution have the data that they need to understand what, who are the women entrepreneurs that are already in their portfolio? Sometimes they're hidden in the consumer business, sometimes they're in plain view, sometimes they're looking for credit and not getting it. So we try to make sure we have access to the data, we understand and that the bank understands what they're doing, and then work with them to try to develop the products and services and offerings that will really serve the women's market and in a way that might be different than the, the way men um, are treated with the institution. We also ask the institutions to look at their own staffing, their own approaches, the way they think about design processes and they think about the things like the layout of their branches and is it welcoming to women? Are they seeing branch uh, officers who are actually reflecting them? Are there women in those offices? Are there managers that are women? So we try to work on 
you know, kind of the gender lens, both from the inside of the financial institution and in terms of the products and services mm -hmm. that they have. And then um, more importantly, when we look at what the needs are of women entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs have different features than male entrepreneurs in many cases. They tend to operate on smaller margins. They have less access to collateral. Uh, they have slower growth trajectories. And so the products and services that they need might not need to be totally different than what men need, but they need them in different uh, combinations. They might need them over different time frames. And they need also to be brought in and educated. They need to hear about the products a little bit more. So how the customer service happens is different for women. And I think that's a really important point you made, which is something that when I've done features around this kind of topic in the past, it's come up, is that actually one of the barriers to access is like the physical nature of the buildings themselves. Like some women, they stay in a very you know constricted area they don't move very far they don't have the means of transport to yeah. move into a city to go to actually to a bank and then there's the the mental barrier of going into this potentially very big glass fronted building or with marble floors and how that can be a barrier to some women to actually going inside and getting the support they need so like you say it's almost it's not just having the products and services it's having that kind of welcome and meeting these women on the level that they understand to say that actually yes you know a bank building can be a bit big and scary but these services they are for you and they are your services as well yeah absolutely i mean bank branches and the design of those branches are important but we've also seen great innovations in digital banking bringing the banks to where women are so uh having banking services in grocery stores or shopping areas or other places that it might be more convenient for women one of the big challenges for women is time deficits mm -hmm. Um, so they don't have a lot of time to spend traveling to branches and, and back home. And if there's a way for banks um, using digital technologies and more mobile um, approaches to be where the women are, that makes a big difference. Okay, great, Wendy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome to this chapter. I'm joined now by Rui Zamora, who's Chief Strategy Officer at GCash. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having us. It's good to be here. So to start off with, GCash has a strong focus on supporting women's access to finance. What is it doing differently to its competitors and also the conventional banks that brings in more women users? Well, I think the first thing for us at GCash is that we really focus on understanding the challenges of the customer whatever gender, whatever location they're at, whatever socioeconomic class. We really invest time in understanding um, the challenges they have. And primarily in GCash, we focus on addressing and understanding the challenges to access. So once we solve that, right, or once we address that, it becomes a little easier for us to be able to target um, the different kind of... Um, uh, excluded sectors, if you will, one of which um, is women. And also at GCash, you have a really strong culture of women working there too. And I found some stats online <laughs> and there are 46% of the workforce overall and 44% of the leadership team is female, which is way above kind of the industry standard average. Was this something that the company deliberately set out to do? And if so, kind of why did it decide to go about this? And also, how does having such a high percentage of female employees influence the decision-making at the company? 
looking back, Kimberly, um, I think the industry in general has really shifted and progressed leaps and bounds in terms of gender equality. Um, prior to joining um, GCash and the Globe Group, um, I was in another industry. I was with management consulting. And I saw firsthand there how gender programs had to be very specifically designed. Um, also, through previous clients in the past, I've seen how there needed to be very specific targets set um, to address certain um, people-related agenda, one of which was inclusion and diversity. But what we are proudest of in GCash, and if I may say so, the rest of the Globe Group, is that because we are driven by meritocracy, um, we are seeing that the representation gender-wise, age-wise, um, socioeconomic-wise, it's really based on who can get the job done, right? And I think it's very telling that there's almost 50-50 representation, um, not just in the top leadership level, but across the workforce. And I think even more starkingly, um, because women in leadership roles is not as... Um, foreign concept in a country like the Philippines. I know in other countries, other economies, it is a bit of a foreign concept, but it isn't too new for us here in in the Philippines. Um, but what we are proudest of, apart from having women in leadership roles, is that we have a good representation of it in technology roles. Mm. And we are, after all, a fintech company. So, and again, it's not by hard target setting. It's not like a very specialized um, recruitment process. Um, it is based on merit. And I think that says a lot. If it's based on merit, you end up having a good representation because women can do it, you know, in many cases better, yeah. right, than, um, than men. Men bring their own skill sets as well. Women bring their specific um, unique skill sets also. Um, how it helps us in the decision-making, the design. Um, I think we can all agree that women have a very meticulous way of you know, going through a decision process. Particularly in GCash, like I said earlier, it's about understanding the customer pain points and the customer sentiment. And um, applying a gender lens to that has helped us really have more, um, have very specific products that would address the issues that our customers face. And in this case, having a gender lens, obviously, you understand what the women go through, right? Their challenges to access, their challenges to financial education. So we're able to address it a little more um, directly. Yeah. And just to kind of go back to the points around the like the workforce that you have, and you said like even in the the development, the tech side, you have a lot of women as well. That's something that people have said to me before is part of the difficulty because there isn't always that pipeline of women coming through with the skills, with the training. Are you, how are you finding that? Is it is a difference in the Philippines, for example, are there more women with these kind of skills coming through from university, etc.? Globally, if uh, the last statistic I had, below 30% of um, technology, the technology workforce globally, I think it's low 20s. Um, are represented by women. In the Philippines, I think just by preference, right, um, we're seeing an increase of women taking what we call the STEM courses, mm -hmm. right? So 
I think it, it stems from a lot of things. Number one is it all starts as a as a young child, right? Mm. What are you empowered to do mm. and what are you empowered to dream of and achieve, right? It's no, I, I think we don't live in an age anymore where if you're female, you're kind of limited to these roles mm. and these are the expectations. At least um, that is my view of how it is in the Philippines. We're, we're from an earlier age, we're more empowering mm-hmm. of whether male or female, um, boys or girls. Second, there are very strong advocacies um, in universities for gender representation in the STEM courses, right? So you have a lot of female engineers, a lot of female scientists, a lot of female um, uh, enrollees in computer science and technology courses. There's also a lot of kind of nonprofits whose mm. main focus is really starting the girls young in things like coding, um, things like um, robotics. Mm. Like they're specifically designed to get young girls exposed to this at an early age. Yeah, yeah I think that's so interesting that like you hear around. There's a lot of programs now to really encourage that development and I guess kind of as a side as well like something that I've found personally is that like I have friends women in their mid-30s in the UK who have decided to retrain and move into these fields so you know when when I was at school when they were at school we were it wasn't really an option it didn't really exist as a job but now we're seeing that kind of movement as well of like mid-career women moving into these industries. Actually now that you mentioned that so I mentioned the um, non-profits or there are even for-profit organizations that focus on enabling young girls mm-hmm. into the STEM track you're right there is a proliferation in the Philippines as well of these organizations who do mid-career mm-hmm. or if I may say so mid-life mm-hmm. um, retraining right so they were designed specifically to enable women who either a needed to pause their careers mm. because of personal circum or economic circumstances b um were trained in very different fields in the past and now are having a hard time looking for employment mm. in those tracks that they've been trained for um and so that's a that's great effort but i think the other side of that coin is having organizations like gcash and other organizations in the philippines be open to employing mm. these mid-career, yeah. um, newly shifted, in that sense, um, women in tech. Mm. And I'm happy to report and I'm happy to share that um, we do have that in GCash as well. Mm. We're working with these kinds of organizations to provide those opportunities. Great. And then to the last point now, we're here at the ADB meeting and you know, there's been a lot of talk, there was the panel earlier this week, which was around supporting more financial inclusion, greater access for women. What do you think that the big organizations like the ADB can do to support greater access for women and girls? The multilaterals definitely have such a wide coverage, right? In terms of sectors they support, in terms of funding, in terms of development priorities specific to fintechs like gcash i think the first one is really helping identify where they are i think the point of view and of course there's effort from the private sector to do that but i think the point of view and the resources available to an organ a multilateral like adb is quite unique right so where is that effort needed 
to be concentrated on. So that's number one. The second would be, and I think they're already, I know they're already doing this, so continuing would be great um, in terms of the technical assistance and the being able to educate, right? Um, once they identify who these are, it's not just about designing innovative programs for them, right? It's about educating them as well um, so that once the program is done, it's self-sustaining, right? Uh, another huge one specific to women and girls would be the long-term impact evaluation because, again, um, it's easy to implement the program, I think. Um, it's easy to program your resources to a particular sector, but seeing how it actually improves the lives of these people, I think that requires more mid- to long-term engagement, mm -hmm. and I think ADB is very well-placed for that also. That's great. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you for listening to Disruptive Voices, a monthly podcast from The Banker. You can listen at thebanker.com, ACAST, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.